Hey, I'm Daniel, a political activist and campaigner turned management consultant turned coach. And this is PoliticWise, the podcast where politics meets personal development. Let's face it, it's easy to criticize those in politics. But being in politics is not an easy ride. And yet for many who make the leap, it's worth it. They can make a real difference. So how can we have both? How can we make a difference while at the same time showing up as the best version of ourselves? It's a question that's been with me for the last 20 years. First, when I started out as an activist leading an NGO, then when I did a PhD in politics, and later when I quit my job in consulting to help build up a political movement and run an election campaign. And today, as I coach young leaders who want to make a difference while staying true to themselves. I know the answers are out there, so join me on this podcast. We'll hear from political leaders, from psychologists, neuroscientists, philosophers about their findings and experiences. And together, we learn about the ideas, mindsets, and tools of wise people in politics and beyond. Let's go. My guest today is a lecturer in political behavior at the University of Sheffield. His research focuses on political psychology and democratic education. He's published on trust in politics, mental well-being in political office, and democratic education. And not only is he researching the psychology of politicians, he's also entered the political arena for a short time as a parliamentary candidate for the 2019 general election in the UK. My guest is Dr. James Weinberg. James, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Daniel. Thank you for inviting me on. James, I'm 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 a political scientist myself. I when when I when I studied politics, I looked at political actors such as uh, nation states, international organizations, NGOs. Uh, I hardly ever looked at the individual human being, the politician. Um, And this is what you're looking at when you're looking at political psychology. Uh, I read on your website a few months ago, actually, um, you wrote, in order to better understand and respond to the challenges facing liberal democracies, as well as authoritarian regimes, I believe that political scientists need to engage in direct research with those who actually occupy political office. And James, when I read this, this was, I think, in, in February or March. Uh, so it was at a time when actually the war began in Ukraine and Russia invaded Ukraine. And back then my association was, I thought of Vladimir Putin yeah, and speculation about his motives, his psychological state. Um, and I know your, your research is more on democratic politicians, particularly in the UK. Um, but perhaps let's start off there. You know, what, what's, what's your why for this research? What's, what's important about studying the, psychology of politicians well yeah th thank you for that introduction daniel um very very kind and uh thank you for um for giving such context to this this discussion as well uh and you're right what a what a timely moment to be talking about the repercussions of uh individual decisions taken by individuals in the political world i think for for me there are a number of reasons why i gravitated towards the psychology of politicians The first was, I suppose, uh, uh, my own hesitation as a student 
engaging with some of the the ideas and seminal texts that I was being presented with that were all about the big institutions of politics, the checks and balances of democracy, and the path dependence um, that those institutions and structures create. Uh, and the idea that actually, you know, things will continue to, continue to move on incrementally, will continue to evolve regardless of who's in office. And I was a little bit skeptical of that, um, that thesis. Uh, you know, I, for, for me, I would look at uh, the history of politics, the history of democracy, and see it punctuated by individual characters who actually were themselves critical junctures in that that, that long arc of, uh, of democratic evolution. You know, they themselves were creating new path dependencies and it was, it was their characters and their, the motivations behind the decisions they made that really fascinated me. So as a, as a doctoral student, as a postdoctoral um, fellow, it was the, the psychology of politicians that I, I chose to focus on. But there are also you know, b- bigger issues here beyond my personal interest in what makes you or me or any political uh, activist or leader tick. There are bigger questions about um, democratic deficits, democratic decline, that kind of narrative that has dominated post-millennial literature in, in political science, especially post-millennial literature on the anti-politics phenomenon. And here, it's, if we look at what the general public talk about when they talk about politics, it's the people. It's the people doing politics. There's a, there's a, a, a predilection to, to pick apart their characters, to focus on um, those negative or untrustworthy characteristics uh, that might threaten the common good. Uh, you know, the, uh, the stereotype of the um, self-interested, greedy politician has become a pretty much folklore um, in lots of, of Western societies. Um, and as David Easton argued, you know, decades ago, if that trust or that uh, lack of trust um, in the specific, uh, in individual politicians or, or a political class uh, becomes too um, dogmatic, then it also trickles over into more diffuse system support. People go from questioning those who are operating in politics and acting on their better half to questioning the systems and institutions um, that supposedly regulate and govern the world of politics and democracy and, um, and the rest of it. So there is, a, there is an added stimulus to, to understanding the people who are both making decisions on our behalf, but are also routinely criticized. Yeah. And, and then there, there is this link to the perception that, that citizens have, have, have of politics. So understanding uh, a little bit better about the psychology of, of politicians, how difficult it can also be. Um, is it that this might also increase the understanding that citizens then have and perhaps impact their their trust uh, towards politics and, and politicians? Absolutely. You know, we we need to um, we need to get around the frames used in the in the mainstream media and the visceral. Um, criticism that dominates social media discourse about politicians and actually uh, provide, you know, really robust programs of 
democratic education, both in school and for lifelong learning, so that people understand what it takes to step into that arena before they send that next tweet or post that next Facebook message. And I know that some countries do this much better than others. Here in the UK, we're terrible at it. Um, you know, we, we had a statutory program of study called citizenship education that was introduced in 2002, but it was very light touch. It was poorly funded. Uh, and, and at the last count, I think only about a quarter of schools actually offer weekly lessons in it. Um, and we see this, this lack of understanding, let alone a lack of empathy, play out in public discourse about politicians. Now, the, you know, the media has... Um, has a responsibility here you know they have been very quick to personalize the political in recent decades because that's that sells print that you know is, is clickbait content but they've also politicized the personal as well so if you read media articles about politics today they're invariably more about uh the characteristics of the actors involved than the actual policy issues um that are, are are at stake um and this is this means that you know our, our attention as consumers of uh, of media is, is pushed onto those factors as well and as 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 humans we have an innate negativity bias to focus on uh potential threats um and this means that when we consume the, these um, these frames about the self-interested politician, we're much more interested to focus on uh, on those negative characteristics of, of those in politics uh, and to make more diffuse judgments about the political class more generally than to focus on any positive um, content about policy decisions, policy outcomes, or even uh, positive characteristics of politicians. And then we disseminate this ourselves. We know, you know, lots of psychological studies of negativity bias show that people are much more likely to remember that negative content and also to pass it on. And so we then have this kind of two-step flow where that negative content spread through the mainstream media is spread through social media and people's um, local social networks. And at some point, you have to, you have to create a dam to stop that flow of content uh, and, and to, to try and increase people's um, understanding of the political system, of what it takes to be a politician as a counterweight to often unchecked uh, and uh, ungrounded perceptions of politicians more broadly. Yeah. And and that sounds like a big job, right? Because as you say, <laughs> it, 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 it goes against like an, an innate tendency to perhaps look more at the negative, at, at the fear, at the threat that, that we have as, as, as human beings talking more about Donald Trump and how he's destroying democracy, because that's, that's interesting. Um, so huge, huge, huge effort, but yeah. perhaps. And, and, and also, um, Daniel, if I, if I might say, you know, I, this is not to excuse politicians i am you know whilst I, i might try to provide some empirical data in my research to actually ground and or counter some of these rote stereotypes about politicians i'm i'm not an apologist for politicians yeah. politicians themselves also need to take responsibility for their own behavior um and in many cases we see politicians playing up to some of these frames uh, on occasion you know um the fact that parliaments have become more transparent is fantastic for, for direct accountability, but at the same time, it means that the performative aspects of politics and the performative aspect of parliamentary politics has increased. 
um, and the, the kind of the, the ever-present campaign, uh, so to speak, has, um, has really become more prominent. You know, people can tune into here in the UK, tune into BBC Parliament, and they can see politicians operating in real time constantly. Uh, and those politicians are aware as well that they're being watched all of the time. You know, Prime Minister's Questions uh, is, a, is an excellent example where uh, of a performative arena in which politicians' behaviour does not meet the standard we would expect um, of those elected to governors. So within this, this broader debate about who's responsible for, uh, you know, creating more measured opinions of politicians, creating more understanding of political life, politicians also have a role to play yeah yeah and perhaps that also brings us to this topic of um of stress in politics uh you've mentioned the the arena that a politician is in um there's there's a beep there's beep you know bbc is, is covering all the aspects of of perhaps um uh, of, the, of the job of a politician and and not just not just the PBC, but certainly also tabloids. Um, mm. I I did a I did a workshop, uh, James, once with um, young young political leaders. It was a workshop on emotional intelligence, but within that, I presented some of the work you also contributed to um, about stresses in politics. Mm. So, what are the things that actually cause stress, especially for politicians? And the response was some of them found it discouraging uh, to, to hear that, but others found, um, in a sense, a bit more well, you know, prepared at least, um, a, a sense of confidence, okay, this is what, this is what the job will take. Um, perhaps tell us a little bit more about those main stresses that you see in politics. You've written about, um, I saw on your blog, the mental health of MPs is at risk, mm. um, whether you know the job of a politician should carry a health warning. Um, what's, what is stressful about being in politics? Well, standing, standing for office, let alone actually holding office, is it's all-consuming. It's exhausting. Um, And it's virtually incompatible with uh, the kind of healthy lifestyle we would all want to lead in an ideal world. Um, now, if we take, for instance, the, the World Health Organization's definition of, of, uh, of mental health and well-being, you know, they say it's a, it's a state of well-being in which I think it's every individual realizes his or her own potential. They can cope with the normal stresses of life, work productively, make a contribution to community uh, and enjoy um, the fruits of their labor, so to speak. But the pressures that are exerted on politicians are directly antithetical with that definition of mental health and, and well-being. Um, and in my own work with, with colleagues, we've tried to um, identify these stresses and uh, kind of coagulate them into an organizing perspective that other scholars can use and, other, and, and practitioners themselves can use to understand where these pressures are coming from. So very briefly, we can think of them at three ecological levels. So macro level stresses, which are about the broader cultural firmament in which politicians operate. Meso level stresses, which emanate from within the institutions, systems or context that bound politicians working lives. And then micro level stresses that reflect some of the ancillary pressures that arise from um, attempting political work. So 
those macro level um, stresses, they, they can be real or imagined. They can relate to historical and contemporary public opinion. Um, and they're, you know, increasingly ever present in a ubiquitous um, media environment. So we might think of the distrust stressor, the idea that politicians constantly have to operate in a low trust, high blame environment, that they are uh, inevitably on the end of generalized cynicism, um, abuse at, at, at the extremes, hostility, uh, and all of that in spite of their own um, effort. Uh, and my recent research with politicians in the UK, Canada and South Africa um, seems to point to the fact that that is a that's a phenomenon that is widespread um, beyond the beyond borders. Mm. And James, uh, that, that's interesting, right, because outside of politics, when we're talking about corporate jobs, there's a lot of talk about psychological safety. Uh, and, and trust is a major major aspect of that. Well, I, I at least haven't heard of a conversation about psychological safety in politics yet. No, no, and and that's partly because of the unique nature of of what political representation entails. You know, the the leveling spirit of democracy means that um, we are skeptical hmm. whenever politicians get preferential treatment or appear to be uh, treated any better than you or me. Um, and this extends in many respects to caring for their, their health and well-being. Um, there is a presumption, I think, that politicians uh, live rather cushy lives and uh, are incredibly um, privileged, and they, and they are in many ways, um, and, and therefore don't need the kind of on one hand, sympathy, and on the other hand, resource uh, when it comes to their mental health and well-being. But that that simply isn't the case. Um, you know, in, in my own research, I've found that 40 to 50 percent of, uh, of elected MPs are um, exposed to, to that distrust stressor, and it has an impact on their health and well-being as measured by, you know, general um, health questionnaires, personal health questionnaires, those kind of tools we use in primary care. Um, and, and, and it can be detrimental to an individual politician's professional competency, their sense of personal worth and well-being. You know, the hallmarks of political distrust, such as persistent criticism, fault finding, reminders of past mistakes, dismissive disregard, they're just as likely to manifest themselves in illnesses Uh, and behavior such as uh, as alcohol or drug misuse, exhaustion, breakdown, high-risk behavior, poor decision-making among politicians, as they have been evidenced to do in other professions, such as, as medicine and teaching. So, you know, not only is there more of a conversation here to be had about psychological safety at work for politicians, um, but also, you know, going back to what we were saying before about awareness building, We need to do more to educate people that this matters. You know, if our politicians are experiencing these stresses and as a result exhibiting symptoms of psychological ill health, well, that will have a knock-on effect to how well they can represent you or me. And by implication, we should be all we should all be concerned about how to to address those issues. Um, so yeah, I completely agree with you, Daniel, yeah. um, on that point. And at the same time, it's 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 a difficult balance to strike, right? Because um, as you as you mentioned, that the nature of democratic politics is is, is about scrutinizing those in power, um, 
ho holding them accountable and and perhaps being a little bit critic not 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 a little bit but perhaps perhaps risking to be a bit more critical than 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 with with other uh, uh, jobs or uh, areas of our lives so how to strike that balance i guess is a difficult question be between on the one hand to have that scrutiny in democratic politics and on the other hand not having it lead up to a point where where politicians become ineffective because they suffer uh, under it hmm. and and uh, you know it's it's tricky because um there's a lot of people suffering out there who are facing immense problems and they look around themselves at who has power to help and they see politicians as having that power uh, and therefore feel like they are legitimate targets for, you know, their anger, their frustration. Um, but again, if we go back to that, that lack of understanding about, you know, how democratic, politi democratic politics actually works, what they fail to appreciate is that the everyday politician, the majority of backbenchers have very little to no control over big policy decisions or even, you know, the, the, the kind of change that those people want to see. Um, you know, and that itself is a, is a stressor for politicians. Lots of the politicians I've worked with said that, you know, on a daily basis, they'll witness suffering. They will speak to constituents who are going through, you know, great hardship and they will try to help them. But at the end of the day, have to acknowledge that they have an, an inability to affect real change in the way that they thought they might do when they first entered politics. Um, and that, that lack of agency is, is, is a stressor in and of itself. It's one of those micro stressors operating at the individual level of, of, of the, um, the politician. It's something that's very hard to, to quantify, but um, uh, something that, that requires empathy from all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps empathy is a link to another stressor. I think on the micro level that you've identified with your colleagues um, around emotional labor. So this idea that politicians, we, we all need to, to manage our emotions in a sense where we may feel one thing, but have to show something else on the outside. And uh, certainly true for politicians. T tell us a little bit more about, about that and what, what's stressful about it. Of course, yeah. So, you know, the, the idea of emotional labor um, coined in terms of, of that phrase goes back to some of um, Arlie Hochschild's work. Hochschild looked at the way in which um, employees in public service jobs often um, they suppress their own emotions and engage in false face acting in order to elicit the kind of responses from customers or other service users that is expected within that um, working environment and context. Now, politicians are public servants. Um, you know, their employers, for want of a better word, are you and me. You know, those of us who give our vote to a politician uh, are expecting them to make good on some of the promises that were in the manifestos we read to uh, represent our better interests where they can. Um, but in interactions with politicians, we also expect them to behave and speak and act in certain ways. And those, uh, you know, those presumptions might not always match how politicians actually feel. 
And so a lot of the time, politicians are going around in varied environments and putting on a number of different faces. You know, they're in a they're in a select committee and, you know, they're engaging in scrutiny work with colleagues from different parties. And that requires a certain type of acting. They might be in the chamber. Uh, it's a little bit more performative and that requires a, a different face. They might be on the doorstep, you know, and they're trying to manage the anger, frustration or enthusiasm of, of an individual voter. That requires some acting. And, and all of these different faces might contradict what's actually happening beneath the surface. And this is exhausting. This constant contradiction of your own self-identity is commonly associated with symptoms of burnout in public service jobs. Um, you know, the idea of um, uh, kind of becoming very pessimistic about what you're achieving at work, uh, lacking energy, not sleeping well. Lots of the, the symptoms that we might also expect with more severe uh, mental health um, disorders or conditions. But the, the big difference for politicians is that there is no respite. Um, and the coping tactics that are available to other public service employees in other industries are not available to politicians. So for example, if you're engaging in lots of emotional labor in some public service industry, you might, and you're starting to feel a bit burnt out, you might go and talk to a colleague, you know, express your concerns and kind of that peer-to-peer -peer therapy can help. You're sharing experiences and you're sharing how you're feeling and um, offloading is, is a well-known tactic for, for alleviating some symptoms of, of burnout. But for politicians, they can't go and talk to colleagues because all colleagues are at best antagonistic cooperators within politics. Um, and there is still a huge amount of stigma attached to mental ill health in politics. Uh, I think Peter Lurven published some results from experiments in Canada a few years ago that showed that politicians or candidates that admitted to mental ill health, Ill health problems suffered a 10 to 20 percent um, uh, penalty at the ballot box by comparison to someone suffering a physical illness. You know, that, that, that was 2019, I think that study came out. Oh. Um, so the idea of sharing these problems with colleagues who might weaponize them in an electoral context makes it, you know, extremely um, uh, unattractive as, as a coping mechanism. You know, then you might think, okay, what are other coping mechanisms? Well, uh, employees in other industries might take time out. They might take sick leave. I mean, when was the last time you saw a politician, you know, take, take sick leave or, or be documented to do so for mental health reasons? They don't, because again, it's admitting to something that carries stigma. It's a sign of weakness. It might be weaponized by your political opponents, but it also might be weaponized by competitors within your own party. Or the party itself might think, well, maybe this, this candidate just isn't up to the job. We need to find someone else. Yeah. James, I, I, I'd love to also talk about your own experience in politics. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you've, you've studied the psychology of politician, politicians and then, and then you became one, at least for a short, short time. Um, Perhaps tell us a little bit about what 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 were you perhaps surprised of? What did you what was confirmed from what you what you expected to see? Mm. Um, yeah, what, uh, what what was that brief brief experience like for you? Extremely formative. So you know there were things that I, I probably already knew, but you know I, I didn't keep in mind as I. Uh, as I was campaigning, you know, the fact that politics is incredibly messy, 
it's a contingent business but at the same time it's hard to talk about those contingencies with the public because the public understanding of politics and political processes is built on stark conceptions of right and wrong um that to be a political candidate is to become public property to your party members to the public to lobby groups to the media and the mental and physical pressures of that are immense um you know the fact that you are learning every single day uh about communities um social contexts cultural contexts the the social fabric of your you know your region or, or country that you might have taken for granted beforehand you know i met people from all walks of life every doorstop conversation provided a snapshot of people's lives who were very different to my own i visited schools hospitals food banks homeless shelters um and and particularly here in the uk those conversations made it very clear to me that something wasn't working you know the inequality i saw in one of the country's most affluent constituencies was heartbreakingly stark and that adds a, a level of color uh to the kind of academic research i do um that i wouldn't otherwise have had um you know i i gained a, a much stronger appreciation for party members and supporters who i think are often overlooked by academics although there is a, a wonderful party members project run by tim bale at, at queen mary university but you know every good campaign is built on the backs of hard-working supporters and out of the limelights those everyday heroes that help candidates to pound the streets to print the leaflets knock on doors deal with residents deal with media manage campaign funds research local issues travel between disparate locations at ungodly hours with little rest and often little reward uh, and candidates owe them a huge debt of gratitude and more could definitely be done uh, you know switching back to research here in terms of understanding how they facilitate um, campaign victories yeah um, if I, if I may, um, and those volunteers are definitely also, if I, if I think about how we started our conversation, a channel to, to change perceptions of politics, right? Because there are many volunteers and they all, all have their families and their friends and, and mm. they, are, they are active in politics without being an active politician. Mm. Uh, and they're close to politics. They perhaps know the politicians as human beings. So they, they have got a very... Um, They've, they, they've, yeah, they've got this inside look, but at the same time, perhaps they are, yeah, trusted much more by their, by their surroundings, and then can convey that, yeah, um, that that different different perspective of politics um, to to the general public. Mm, of course, of course, and you know, one one of the things though, on the flip side, that I I also learned and appreciate much more now, is that even when you have a local candidate, uh, as I was, that was born and raised in a constituency. The electoral returns on local campaign activities um, or the efforts of a local membership are depressingly overshadowed by the effect of national trends and occurrences in party politics. Mm. Uh, that's an inalienable fact, but one that I often forgot as I was running the campaign. Um, it's one that I guess all candidates have to accept, but you start to convince yourself that you are in control, you're making a difference in your little local area, that what's happening elsewhere might be or you might be insulated from what's happening elsewhere. Yeah. But then it is, I think this was, uh, you know, something that, that really struck me by the end of the campaign that, you know, criticisms and castigations in politics um, are, are rarely personal. They are reflective of 
um, broader disillusionment or distrust and disengagement um, with a different part of the political ecosystem. But then again, you know, votes are very rarely personal either. Um, as much yeah. as, as much as we might, you know, write about um, you know tactics to increase a personal vote, that the, the returns there are very minimal. In a sense, that's a coping mechanism, right? I had a conversation um, on, on another podcast with someone who was in politics, and 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 she and she tried to differentiate those roles that she has, and exactly said, right? If I get that criticism, it's rarely directed at me as a you know as a private person, but it's directed at my role. But I can separate those two things, and that, and that helps me at least, you know, cope with that that heat that I get. Yeah, and you know, th th I mean, this is a, a a tactic that we'd see played out in in other jobs as well. The idea of dissociating yourself mm. um, from the criticism, uh, you know, where where comments are manifestly unfair or manifestly untrue um, or far too generalizable um, to really relate to something you yourself has done, then dissociating yourself can be a powerful coping mechanism. Mm. What 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 are some of the other things, James, that helped you during that time um, uh, cope with it? If, if you just could name a, a few things that really, yeah, for you, worked for you personally. Yeah, so I I relied a lot on on my family during that campaign, and actually, since running, I I've done another uh, a big project. Um, with politicians that included a bit of a focus on, on health and well-being. And I remember one politician from Canada telling me that, you know, politicians choose their job. You know, they decide to go into politics and they have some awareness of all that that entails, but our families and our friends are conscripted in the process. And I think that's a very powerful um, idea actually and it's one that i do relate to in in hindsight because i did rely a lot on my family during that kind of eight week period um in which i was actively campaigning and running and um you know i constantly talking to them about what i was experiencing having very little mental space or energy to ask them about themselves though uh and i you know i think there's always a flip side to a coping mechanism Uh, especially in politics, because if you rely too heavily on your family, well, that will take a burden on them. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's it's no coincidence that politicians have, uh, or the political class has a very high rate of, of divorce, uh, high rates of family breakdown. Um, and so whilst that was certainly a coping mechanism for me, that, that kind of sharing and caring within my family, I'm not sure it's a sustainable one for politicians who are elected to office. Um, the other kind of flip side, I think, is that, uh, or not flip side, but the other factor is, is work. So, you know, running a conscientious and an effective campaign is virtually incompatible with retaining a full-time job. Now, um, I'm extremely lucky that I work in a profession that allows for flexible working. I also work in a particular part of that profession that's sympathetic to people being involved in politics and, and, and learning and uh, engaging with the political, so to speak. So I was given the flexibility to 
to go and you know run in this campaign and I worked my my day job around it but lots of other people could never do that and I imagine that unless I'd had the support of my employer to go and give this a, a shot um, I would have been either a in a situation where I had no financial um, kind of backstop should the campaign have, have ended in failure which most do um, or been incredibly stressed trying to juggle two things that were incompatible and I think that's why incumbents and and those who can afford to either quit their job in order to run or have enough money to support doing both things at once they have monopoly on the most precious campaign resource which is time and I think one of the the coping strategies that helped me most over and above having a support my employer was the ability to carve out time in the day so yes my agent would have me going left right and center for most hours of the day but i was very strict on saying okay well there are these kind of three or four moments in the day where i want a half hour break where i'm going to step outside of what we're doing i don't want anything scheduled at that time i just want to go and you know i'm going to take a half hour walk i'm going to take a half hour lunch break I'm going to read uh, the newspaper, whatever it might be. Um, those kind of little personal moments of decompression helped. But these are, you know, these, we've got coping strategies here at a number of levels. You know, some are systemic when it comes to thinking about the employment conditions that facilitate running for office and others are personal in terms of how do you structure your day. Um, and I think the, the point I'm trying to make is that some should be available to everyone and others are probably very um, particular to individuals. Yeah. For uh, just, just concluding, James, for someone who is uh, listening and is uh, thinking about making that step into the political arena, um, what should they take away from, from our conversation? I think what, what they should take away is that it's not a decision to take lightly, um, but it, It's also a decision that you shouldn't let define you either. One of the biggest routes to, to ruin in politics is to think that you have nothing else. So, you know, it, I, was, I was telling you before we started, Daniel, that um, uh, I've got a colleague, friend called Jane Roberts, who uh, was a, an ex-council leader here in the UK, and she wrote a book called Losing Political Office. Um, and she described the different types or, or a typology of politicians after they've, they've left politics. Um, and it's often in those moments when, when the campaign ends and you fall off the cliff edge or you've left office um, that uh, you're most susceptible to, to some of the uh, kind of symptoms of, of poor mental health and, and well-being that we've already discussed. But I think you can um, avoid that If you decide at the point, the, the very original point at which you, you think you're going to run, that this is not the sum total of me, you know, if I fail, that's okay. I've got a plan B. Um, that's incredibly important. Um, so make sure you have your plan B. Don't let the decision define you. But also make sure that you have people around you who also understand what it takes to be a candidate, what it might take to be a politician if you get elected and are happy to support you in that journey, because I think it can be an incredibly lonely and isolating job if you don't. And then the final thing 
I would say is to have honest conversations with yourself throughout that journey. Have little check-ins with yourself. Are you still enjoying this? Are you getting the support you need? And if not, how, you know, how or where can you go to get it? Who are you becoming in the public eye? And is it true to yourself? Um, remember to check in with yourself about these things. And that might make the journey a little bit more bearable uh, in the end as well. And hopefully, if you're lucky, you'll have the opportunity to, to make a difference. And that's, I guess, why, or certainly seems to be why most people um, give it a go in the first place. Yeah. James, thank, thank you so much for taking this time. I think we've covered a lot of ground, um, both um, we've got takeaways for people, individuals in politics and, and how to cope with uh, the stress uh, that, that is there. Uh, but also we, we talked about broader, broader, broader implications for us as a society, how to, how to look at politics and, and how to perhaps support those who go into politics as, as Democrats. Um, so thank you. Thank you a lot, uh, uh, James, for, for being on the, on the podcast. No worries. Thank you ever so much for inviting me, Daniel. Hey, this is Daniel. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked the episode. Please share it with someone who might find it valuable as well. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover or a guest I should talk to, let me know. You can find out more on my website. Head over to politicwise.org. Until the next time. <laughs>